If you're Hindu or if you have an interest in the religion, then the story of the churning of the ocean of milk is something you would be familiar with. But how many of you know and understand the significance of the story and how many of you know that the temple complex of Angkor Wat in Siem Reap, Cambodia displays a spectacular 49 meters of intricate sculpted bas-relief that are part of a larger ensemble of scenes from the battle of Kurukshetra, the Ramayana, the 37 heavens and the 32 hells. Professor Vasudha Narayanan from the Department of Religion, University of Florida, is an expert on Hindu traditions, iconography in temples in Cambodia. So let's listen to what she has to say on this story that spans two countries and two different cultures, India and Cambodia. Welcome Vasu. We're so excited to have you podcast for us. Thank you so much for having me with you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. So let me begin by asking you to explain the story itself uh, maybe briefly for those who are not familiar with it. It's a relatively unknown story in India and it focuses on Vishnu's incarnation as a turtle or some people say tortoise. The story goes that the devas that's the good people here the divine people were being terrorized by the asuras or the demons and so they go to brahma and then later to vishnu for help vishnu tells the devas to get the help of the asuras and churn the ocean of milk for the nectar of immortality amrita the devas are a little bit hesitant after all if the asuras join in the enterprise they have to share the goodies with them and vishnu says don't worry about that i'll take care of it so they churn the ocean of milk and many wonderful objects come out of it many nidhis treasures come out of the ocean eventually lakshmi comes out and finally dhanavantri the progenitor of ayurveda according to many people comes holding the jar the kalash of amrita the nectar of immortality In this enterprise at one point the big snake Vasuki gags and bars out a lot of uh, venom and this makes the people faint so they go to Shiva for help and Shiva swallows that poison or attempts to until Parvati actually stops it near his neck which is why he has he's known as the blue throat one the one with the blue throat nilakantha eventually Vishnu arranges such that only the devas get the the nectar of immortality or the ambrosia. It's interesting that you pointed out right at the very end that Vishnu arranged it such, you know, even in those days and in those stories there are these little little nuances that, you know, you point out so beautifully as you narrate it. So thank you for that very interesting story. I'd like to ask you why you decided to focus on Angkor Wat, uh, most specifically this bas relief work on the churning of the ocean of milk. There are two questions there. Mm-hmm. The first is why did I even begin to study Cambodia? Most of my work had been done in the early Ramanuja tradition, textual and then rituals. And then I was writing a book on Hinduism in America. When I thought I needed one introductory chapter on Hinduism overseas in earlier migrations or even settlements into temples in other parts of the world. So I thought I'd probably have two paragraphs on Cambodia or three at the most. 
and was reading secondary books on the area. And I was amazed. I was intellectually appalled with myself for having taught Hinduism for 20, 30 years by then without having taken into consideration the larger sphere of Hindu presence and that the Hindus had been thriving in some manner in Southeast Asia for more than a millennium by the time um, Angkor Wat had been built. Well, presumably at least since the 4th or 5th century CE, though archaeological remains go back there till much, much earlier because we find Roman coins actually in the southern part of Vietnam and other places from about 300 BCE. It was literally like I fell into Cambodia at that point. And this was right around 1998-99. And I began to delve into it a little by little. And it's like unraveling a thread. And the more I opened up, I said, oh my God, I didn't know any of this. And began to study it more and more. It became an enterprise in itself. The second question you asked, is how did I come to the churning of the ocean of milk? Well, yeah. no one can miss it. Yeah, that's The true. hotel that I stayed in the first time I went had a huge representation of devas and asuras pulling vasuki, the rope, right outside that hotel. And everywhere I went, it was on your face, you could see this. And eventually, when I went to Angkor Wat, the largest bar relief in the world 49 meters wide, as you pointed out, is on this theme, which is relatively unknown in India. I mean, stories of Rama and Krishna are much, much more common and temples to them. So if the largest relief in the world, literally, is on this theme, it's obvious that it meant something to the Khmer people. And the question is, what did it mean? And why would they want to, to devote so much financial and human resources on the carving of this thing. And the fact that it was relatively unknown in India, but so big in Cambodia from about the ninth century made me realize that the Hinduism that you find in earlier times in Cambodia was not quite the same way that you would find it in India. But even in India, of course, as you know, there are many kinds of Hinduism in each different state. You have its own individual variation. Yeah. And similarly, in Cambodia, you had that too. So it showed that the Cambodians, the Khmer people, used their own agency in picking and choosing what they wanted from the larger Hindu world, whatever suited them best and whatever resonated with their traditional culture prior to the coming of Hinduism. And that's what they valorized. This was one of those stories. And I'm trying to figure out all the meanings of this particular story over the centuries. So I have a question for you here. I want to ask you what you find particularly interesting in this bas-relief work that is on the Angkor Temple wall. Well, a number of things, including that this is the earliest, one of the most beautiful, beautifully documented versions of the story. But an unusual feature of this particular version of the churning of the ocean of milk is at the end of the line of devas, you have a very tall, handsome monkey. A monkey in the story? How did he come here? And the guides will tell you it's Hanuman, mm. but it's not. And for 15 years, 20 years, I wondered and mulled over this until I finally realized that incumbents Ramayana and Tamil, it is Vali who helps the many devas churn the ocean of milk. 
And it is he who really procures the Amrita for them. What is most interesting is that this story is also found in some of the earliest materials in Kerala. And here, Bali, actually, as he's represented in the Tayam songs, he churns the Mandara mountain and actually gets Tara as his wife from there. And it's been noted that even in the most archaic of the Tayam pieces, we have this particular version of Bali coming there. And in fact, it's been pointed out by other scholars that the story of the churning occurs in Kerala very early in the Abhishek Nataka itself. And so it also appears in uh, the Ramayana Champu in the 15th century, a number of Kathakali plays. And it's particularly seen in what we call the 18th century um, Bali street place, the Tullals of Kunjan Nambia. And here, Bali is the great hero and it's he who is superior to the gods. And Rich Freeman, um, a scholar here, has pointed this out beautifully. And to find this character out there in Cambodia is very intriguing. And we all thought that Hanuman was the only important monkey in the story. Yes. That's amazing. I also noticed or, you know, listened in and you pointed out the different agencies that they adopted to actually, you know, imbibe the religion. Can you point out one or two of the similarities that you've come across in the course of your study? Yes, there are remarkable similarities and remarkable differences. So the fact that I focus on the similarities right now shouldn't make us think that this was an intellectual or even spiritual colonizing. The people there seem to have picked it up on their own. They had a choice. The neighboring country of Vietnam, the Cham people, was more Sinicized and went for Chinese influence. But here, there's considerable give and take with India and the Hindu tradition. So most of the Hindu gods were there even in pre-Angkorian times. And I say pre-Angkor, it's prior to the early 9th century, prior to 802. 802, the Angkorian period begins. And even in the early times, we find that there's been a great deal of contact with India. So the earliest records we have are actually Chinese. And the Chinese texts speak about the early kingdoms and kings called Rudravarman, Bhavavarman, and so on. By the 5th century CE, a queen, Kulaprabhavati, endows a lot of money. And that's the first recorded inscription we have, by the way, in Cambodia. And it's done by a queen. And that's really cool. So Kulaprabhavati endows money to Seishasai, uh, the uh, temple of Seishasai. And we know immediately she's talking about a Vishnu. Even pre-Ankorian, so the names of kings and queens, the iconography, which depicts many Hindu gods. We have Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, Harihara. That is the combination of Shiva and Vishnu. And we have Lakshmi carved on the lintels, Lakshmi being anointed by elephants, the Abhisheka, the royal Raja Abhisheka, that you find in the Vishnu Purana is carved out in many temples. And story after story of the Puranas are all carved out there. So when Indians go there, they are amazed at looking at these carvings and saying, oh my God, all this was here. So I think we've had a cultural amnesia in talking of, in thinking about all these countries and the way in which the culture traveled. But the way in which it, they worked it out and they used it is a little different. One of the similarities, by the way, is the reclining Vishnu, Anantashayan Vishnu. 
we'll get to in that India. in a bit because i have an interesting question for you on that but i'm quickly oh. going to you know just i'd like to focus on the name similarities that you brought up uh, just now so can you comment on the name varma which is common to so many of the khmer rulers as well as so many rulers from southern india any light that you can uh, shed on that sure and in fact actually it's not just southern india even rulers from near assam and the eastern part the suffix of varman was used for royalty varma mm-hmm. varman and so on and in many of the dharma shastras they clearly say that um, names of brahmins should have the suffix of sharma um names of royalty should have varma varman and so on and so this word which means protected by or protector of is used by many of the kings particularly pallavas in the south part the southern part of india and also as i pointed out in the north east interestingly enough some of the very names used by pallava kings are used by the khmer rulers so there's a mahendra varman and uh, others who who call themselves chitrasena and that is actually connected with another pallava king and you find that inscription near laos actually we have to remember that the khmer empire extended well beyond modern day cambodia it extended into modern day thailand myanmar uh laos vietnam and even parts of malaysia yeah. so it was huge and the khmer remains are seen in many places so just going through the list of these names all of them end with varman and it's uh, it, it's a joy even to read it um, the word jayavarman for instance the that was the common. first that was the first thing i saw when i landed at siam reap and you know was driving towards my hotel i saw jayavarman and like you said for any indian who goes there it's an eerie feeling to know that there is so much of our culture in that place and we just never knew about it yes and jayavarman is a name like henry of kings in england <laughs> there are any number of jayavarmans and the one you saw is jayavarman the 7th who is arguably one of the most important um, kings he was buddhist by the way okay. so buddhism okay. uh, the, the division is that, of course the word hindu didn't exist then okay. so the division that you find particularly in ashramas is between the bauda buddhist shaiva and vaishnava and that's the way in which it comes up and so you have names like Udayaditya Varman, Jayavarman, Bhavavarman, fabulous names like that. And the most important person who built Angkor Wat was Suryavarman II. Suryavarman, yes, yes. It's fascinating. But I'm going to now come back quickly to your point on the Padmanabha Swami. Can you point out some similarities between the Vishnu idols that you find in Cambodia and those in India? For example, the Padmanabha Swami in uh, Thiruvananthapuram. Yeah, to contextualize this, a great question. Thank you. To contextualize this, we find Vishnu in many forms, standing and so on. And the one with eight arms, particularly, is very common. And you find that in Pallava sculpture mm. in Kanchipuram. And there's a great deal of similarity in the kind of uh, sculptures of Vishnu iconography in Kanchipuram and what you would find in Cambodia. However, in all of these depictions. the face of vishnu and the clothes would be distinctively my it's from cambodia but the position what he's holding in the sand the attributes the chungi chakra and, and so on the mace all from india mm. so the face features are distinctively local and 
the reclining Vishnu, what you just raised, is extremely common in many parts of Cambodia. And here they seem to follow a particular convention that you find in many parts of India. And I'll point out one example from Kerala. But interestingly enough, almost all the reclining Vishnus is Bujanga Shayanam, that is, he's reclining on the snake or with his hand underneath him, not flat as he is in Tiruvananthapuram. Having said that, I should point out about the directionality that is, if you go to Tiruvananthapuram, the Padmanabha Swami temple, that temple faces east. And so as you're facing the deity, as you're facing the Lord, his head is to your left. That is, the head is to the south and the feet are to the north. That is conventional. That's normal. And that's what you'd find in many parts of India and in Cambodia as well. But the head is in the south and the feet are in the north. Or if the temple happens to face north, the head will be on the east. So as you're looking at it, to make it simple, the head is on the left-hand side, the feet are on your right-hand side as you're facing. However, an inversion happens if the temple is facing west or south. Now, a major exception to this is Sri Rangam. So that is an exception in itself. Without that, take a temple facing west and you find them in Kanchipuram. You find it in Kerala, in a holy place known even in the 8th, ninth, 9th ninth century CE called Tiruvattaru. It is about 50 kilometers by car from Tiruvananthapuram, about 40 kilometers as a crow flies, and just about 50 kilometers by car. And in this temple, which faces west, as you're facing the Lord, Vishnu's head is on your right-hand side, and the feet are to your left, what you would call a mirror image of the temple in Padmanabha Swami temple. So it's almost like they're facing each other and they're ulta, they're kind of mirror images of each other. Yeah. And that happens only when a temple is facing west. Interestingly, in Cambodia, any time that a reclining Vishnu is facing west or south, you find this convention being adopted. That is, the head is as you face him on your right-hand side. It's what I call a reverse reclining Vishnu. In yeah. fact, as you enter Angkor Wat, Right on top, on the main doorway, on the lintel, you'll find a reverse reclining Vishnu. Yes. Why? Because Angkor Wat faces west like many Vishnu temples do in India. That's amazing. I think we can just go on and on and on discussing this because like you say, the subject is so fascinating and it's something that many of us in India have not put our minds to or thought to explore. I did also notice when I was visiting that the... Uh, Archaeological Survey of India is involved in some restoration works at the Bayon Temple, I think. If I uh, Taprom at the Taprom, correct Taprom. at Taprom. Yes, so it was it was really interesting and heartening to see that we are also contributing in some way to that you know preservation of such a important part of you know Hindu heritage and culture. So thank you so much for taking time today to have this interesting discussion with us. And I do hope we can podcast with you again sometime. Thank you. Thank you. I'd be delighted to talk more about how the temples there were aligned to astronomical phenomena, and in fact, the number of devas and asuras in the churning panel correspond perhaps to the number of days between spring equinox and summer solstice and the different meanings of that story. And once again, 
It's been a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much for Thank having you. me with you today. Thank you so much. Thank you.